And so much of what it means to be a spiritual leader is wrapped up in that song that we just sang, right? Desiring to have the same heart that God has, to, to have that heart that is broken for what God's heart is broken for, to, to love like God has loved us. And so this morning, I want you to consider the passage we're going to look at together, but consider the passage in light of the past number of weeks we've been exploring this idea of spiritual leadership, because it's all found within the context of the fact that God is a God who rescues and redeems his people, those who are lost, right? But when God rescues his children, he not only rescues them from sin and death and evil, Right? I mean, for many of us, we, we know, we've, we've looked around, we've seen the evil in this world, we've seen the pain and the brokenness that, that surrounds us. We, we, we know from reading the newspaper or reading the news online or watching a news uh, cast uh, on TV, we know what's going on in our world and it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, when we think of our place in God's story, it's more than just considering the fact that God is a rescuing God who rescues us from sin and evil, from the, the personal nature of sin in our own hearts, but God rescues us to something, and that something is leadership, spiritual leadership to be exact. But, but what I want to encourage us to consider as we close this series this morning, is that we can't think merely on the individual level of what is my role as a spiritual leader. That's too small. That, that's not big enough. In, in fact, oftentimes we do want to know what's my purpose, what's my, my role, what's, what's my value in the kingdom of God, but we need to think bigger than that. We need to think bigger and ask, what is God's collective purpose for us as spiritual leaders? Today, in our, our last installment in our spiritual leadership sermon series through First and Second Timothy, I want us to consider what this means, that God calls us to be spiritual leaders, but not just to consider who am I as a spiritual leader, but to consider what we've been called into collectively as the people of God. Over the past seven weeks, we've learned that Spiritual leadership is forged in our pursuit of godliness, right? Godliness is this idea of longing and seeking to become more and more like God and more and more like he created us to be. But, but godliness is not just a pursuit for the, the spiritually elite, those really religious people. It's for all of us as children of God. And the pursuit of godliness begins not out there in the world, not in our behaviors, but in our inmost being in the depth of our soul, right? We learn that, that, that we're all spiritual leaders, not just a certain uh, a collective group that, that operates in the body of Christ, but all of us are spiritual leaders in the family of God. Just like Jesus told his disciples to follow him and he will make them fishers of men, that invitation was not just for a select few of disciples, but for all of us as followers of Jesus, to, to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, is to become a fisher of men. When Jesus commissioned his disciples before he returned to heaven, he didn't just say to a, a small group, hey, you guys are going to go out and make disciples of all the nations. He says, no, all my disciples are commissioned to go out and to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus of all nations. 
We learned that our family matters. Why? Because this is the most immediate context that God calls us to be spiritual leaders in. That, that, our, that our greatest influence is in our own household, is, is with those people that we have the closest and most intimate relationship with, because this is where we can most clearly live out the character of Christ. But beyond that family context, we have neighborhoods, we have circles of friends, we have places of, of, of business, we have communities, we have states and countries because our reach is not meant to stay there in the household, but to extend out from there. We learn that a, a spiritual leader needs to cultivate the care of their soul. Why? Because as the soul of the leader goes, so goes the leader. And as the leader goes, so go the people that the leader influences in their life. And then finally, last week, we learned that, that the life of a healthy spiritual leader is, is meant to be abundant. It's not meant to be meager and, 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 and quiet and small. It's meant to be an abundant harvest, right? But in order to, to enjoy that beautiful, abundant harvest, you have to tend to the crops with the spiritual gift that God has given you. Each and every one of us have been given that spiritual gift toward that end to tend to the harvest that God has invited us to be a part of. And then finally, this week, as we, as we wrap up looking at First and Second Timothy, we're going to look at probably what is maybe the most uh, important aspect of the Christian life that makes spiritual leadership a reality, and that's the, the role of prayer. Last Sunday, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, which says that God gave us not a spirit of fear or timidity, but, but of power and love and, and self-control. To be a spiritual leader is to be led by the Spirit of God at work in us, dwelling within us, just as Timothy's grandmother and mother and, and even himself, how, how Paul was able to see the Spirit of God at work in them, dwelling within them. That, too, is what our calling is, to, to allow, to, to obey, to, to cooperate with the Spirit of God in, in us. This is one of the truths we hold to in the church, that, that the, the Father's Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity dwells within us by faith in Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in concert together to rescue, to recreate, and to empower the children of God to live fully in the abundant life that Jesus invites us into. But it's not just that, but it's also by faith that we obey and depend on the Spirit of God working in our lives. It's not just that the Spirit of God dwells in us, and that's a good thing, we can, a tool we can pull out from time to time. It's by faith that we depend on that very Spirit that dwells in us to live out the life that God calls us to. But here's the thing. I can't obey the Spirit and be led by the Spirit in me unless I'm paying attention to that Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, right? So for all of us, as children of God, as, as followers of Christ, as people who say yes to Jesus being our Savior, we are children of God, but not just children of God who, who receive the benefits of being children of God, but we are children of God who are led by the Spirit of God that dwells in us. But church, if, if I pay God no attention, am I really being led by him? 
Is the Spirit of God something like an autopilot where we can just kind of turn off our brains and, and, and God will lead us to our destination? Or has God given us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, to empower us if we pay attention to him? See, what Paul will teach us this morning in our passage is that you can't be a healthy spiritual leader without a healthy practice of prayer. Because without a healthy practice of prayer, we can't know and be obedient to God the Father. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at the first seven verses of this passage. It'll be on the screen. You could pull out uh, your app on your phone or your tablet, but uh, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us the first seven verses of our passage. Paul writes this to Timothy. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word because, Lord, that is what dwells within us, the word of God. Lord, give us minds and hearts that are obedient to your word this morning, to glean from your word what you desire us to glean from. And Lord, give us the strength and the courage to be faithful to how you have revealed yourself to us through Paul into Timothy's life and into ours as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, what I want us to see first and foremost is that, that prayer aligns our hearts with God's. I mean, it's easy to acknowledge that when we face this world, we face this world from our own vantage point, right? We all do it. I do it. We all do it, right? We, we see things through our own lenses. And, and, and oftentimes, we, 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 there's a moment of revelation when we realize, man, not everyone sees things the way I do. Or maybe not everyone is as wise and perfect as I am, right, when you, when you face a circumstance. The reality is that we all face circumstances from the vantage point of ourselves. And yet God invites us to view this world, to view ourselves, not through our own lenses, but through his lenses. And he's given us the spiritual discipline of a life of prayer to align our hearts with his, to see this world through his eyes. Now, there, there's a theme throughout our verses that, that you might uh, think is prayer and supplications and intercessions and thanksgiving. And you may think that for the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to go through and, and unpack what each of those different words for prayer mean and, and, and how uh, they're different. But that's not what Paul is drawing our attention to. If anything, Paul's saying, hey, just to make sure, when I talk about prayer, I'm talking about all of prayer, right? I'm not talking about one aspect of prayer. In, in fact, there is a theme that I do want you to notice here, and it's a three-letter word, all. 
Paul urges Timothy to pray for the people, but which people? All people, right? He says that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving should be made for all people. He urges Timothy to pray for kings, here all kings, and, and all who are in high positions. What Paul is urging Timothy to pray for is a heart that goes beyond the four walls of the church building, right? To expand beyond the, the family of God, to, to, to extend to the far reaches of the earth. It's praying not just for those people who are like us or believe the same things as us. It's praying for our enemies. It's praying for our neighbors. The all people that Paul's referring to is not just the followers of Jesus. It's, he's saying pray for the Romans, pray for the Greeks, pray for the Judaizers, pray for all people. All includes the people in our world who, who, who maybe aren't here in the room when you look around the room. All includes the people in our world who don't share our beliefs or even maybe are hostile toward the beliefs we hold as followers of Christ, right? In his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, those who see this world from a different lens than God, from a different lens than through the life of Jesus, they, they'll not just disagree with you, but they'll take, they'll, they'll take issue with your viewpoint and you will be persecuted for that. You will face opposition, right? And, and, and so we shouldn't be surprised when people disagree with us or even treat followers of Christ in a hurtful or harmful way. So Paul teaches here then to respond in kind and hurt them back? Does Paul tell us as followers of Christ, hey, you know what, we should, we should desire to harm them or desire for their harm or for their Ill, Ill life, right? No. Praying for all people includes praying for those who even persecute us. And when we do, there's something very special that happens. Because when we do pray for those who persecute us, we are reminded in that place of prayer. When we are seeking to have our heart aligned with God's, we are reminded that they're not our enemies. But they're actually the objects of God's love just as we are. Praying for these people reminds us that we too were once God's enemies. And, and when we were, God loved us. God not only loved us from a distance, God drew near to us even when we were his enemies to rescue us, to redeem us, to adopt us into the family of God. So prayer isn't our way of getting something out of God, like a, like a piece of candy from a vending machine. Prayer is the context where God changes us and where he aligns our hearts with his. There's a philosopher named uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who once said, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer does not change God. It's not our chance to convince God to see things our way. It's the context in which God changes us. See, God wants to change your heart. He wants to give your heart more more vision, more perspective, more understanding. God wants to align your heart with his. For what? For all people. And this happens in the context of our prayer life with God. When we spend time thinking on and praying the promises of God for 
one another and for those outside the family of God. When we think on who God is and, and, and praise him for it in prayer. When we spend time considering the, the, not just what we've been rescued from, but, but praising God for what he is rescuing us to. God uses that space to change our hearts, to align our hearts with his, so that we too might have that same heart for all people. And so maybe the most important all that points us to the heart of God is that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. See, prayer aligns our hearts with God's so that we too might desire what God desires. It's not just a matter of having our hearts aligned with his, but more specifically that we too might develop a desire, a divine desire that shares what God's heart desires. You see that in verses three and four of our passage? Paul says, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This, this life of prayer is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, expanding our practice of prayer not only aligns our hearts with God's, but it gives us a clear picture of what God truly desires. Praying for all is good, and it's acceptable in the sight of God because it reflects his deepest desire that all people would come to know him, believe in him, and be saved from death and sin. See, I want us to hear clearly this morning, the gospel is not just for you and I. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. There's this theological idea out there called universalism, where in a sense, you know, because Jesus came, every human being in this world will be saved from death. But that's not what Paul is teaching Timothy here. What Paul is teaching Timothy here is that the heart of God is for all people to be saved. God doesn't desire for anyone to perish. That's why part of his character is so important that he's patient and forgiving and slow to anger and wrath. God desires all people to be saved, regardless of what their viewpoint may be and how we might view them, God sees them as the object of his love and the object of whom he wishes to save and for them to come to a knowledge of the truth. That doesn't mean that all people will be saved. That means that God desires all people to come to him and in Jesus Christ find forgiveness and salvation and not just a rescuing from their past, but a rescuing to a future. God doesn't desire to save some. His desire, his will, his wish is that all people would be saved and come where? Come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not by chance that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God desires, he, he has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, and he desires all people to come and, and experience the way, the truth, and the life, and to experience forgiveness and salvation. And so here's where the operation of prayer in our lives is so important. 
Because the mission that God gave his son, the mission that God gave the person of, of the son of God, Jesus Christ, the mission was to seek and to save the lost. And so after Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross, he gave that mission to the church, to you and I, to carry on and, and, and to carry on as, as his representatives in this world. But God doesn't just want an army of people to do his bidding. That's not what God did in creating the church. He didn't just say, hey, I need lots of people, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create an army, and they're going to go out and do my bidding. God wants to cultivate a crew of rescuers who share his heart for the lost, who share in his divine desire to seek and to save a lost world. In fact, this is the mission around which Jesus Jesus' church is organized, is, is, is created for. And it's why unity in the body of Christ is so important. Unity is important not because it means it's devoid of conflict, because that's not true. Unity is so important to the purpose and mission of the church because we've only been given one mission to accomplish. And if we're divided on that, if we're getting in our own way by, by disagreeing and, and dividing ourselves, that mission will not be accomplished. See, the church in Ephesus where, where Timothy served was, was at risk of forgetting the mission that Jesus gave to his church, the mission for which he had called them together to become fishers of men. There was this growing sense of exclusivity in the church in Ephesus, this was their own version of the frozen chosen or, or the us for and no more club, right? Where, where things were nice and good inside and, and, and their concern wasn't so much for those outside the four walls of the church. This past week, I, I came across a parable about this very thing. It tells the story of this uh, small dilapidated hut that, that stood along a, a particularly dangerous coastline. And, and this small, dilapidated hut was manned by a very small crew of, of rescuers that, that, that had one measly little boat that they would go out in to rescue those people that had found themselves in, uh, shipwrecked in the midst of a storm along this dangerous coast. Now, this crew was passionate about doing what they were doing. They were dedicated to saving the lives of those who were in danger along this coast. With no thought for themselves, they, they, would, they would go out night and day, they worked tirelessly to rescue those who were endangered, to save those whose lives were endangered. After a while, this small crew attracted the attention of others in the, in the area, those who, who seemed to appreciate the nobility of their cause and, and what they were doing. And so people started contributing money and equipment to this small crew of rescuers. People started even committing their own lives to, to work alongside this small crew of rescuers. And over time, th this crew grew and grew and grew to the point that they decided, let's make this a club. L let's organize. Let's make sure we're, we're working together. Let's make this into a club. And so some of the club members eventually kind of felt a little bit discouraged that, that, that they were doing all this awesome work and they're still working out of this broken down, dilapidated little hut with one little boat, right? And, and so they said, you know what, let's, let's, let's pool our money together, let's work on something, let's build something much larger, a little bit more comfortable to bring the, the people we're rescuing into. And, 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 and so they did that. They set, apart, uh, they set about to, to, to rebuild the hut to make it a little bit more attractive and, and more comfortable. And, and over time, some, some of the rescuers became comfortable themselves, and they preferred to stay in the nice warm hut rather than go out in the cold, 
stormy weather to go and rescue these people that were shipwrecked along the coast. And so they had an idea, you know what, let's hire some people to go and rescue people for us, and we'll, we'll welcome them in when they, when they get there, when, when the, this crew brings them in off the water, right? Now, about this time, a large boat wrecked off the coast, and, and, and the hired crew did what they were told to do. They brought a, a whole bunch of tired, cold, wet, and half-drowned people into the, into the, the life-saving station. They were dirty, they were sick, they had so many needs. What's worse, these people were dirtying up and crowding this nice, clean, comfortable space for these new rescuers. This, 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 this hut that they had just renovated and built, right? And so at the, the club's next meeting, there arose a discussion, a division. The, some of the members felt like that the, the they needed to stop this life-saving activity because the people they were bringing in were changing the whole social balance of the club. Others felt like, hey, no, we've, we're, we've got this purpose that we've got to fulfill. So what happened? The group split, right? One group maintained the club with all of its benefits for its members, and the other group went off to find a new space and a, and a, a small hut to operate out of where they could continue to uh, rescue people who were shipwrecked along the coast. Well, sadly, shipwrecks were frequent along this coast, and, and many more lost their lives and were not rescued. Why? Not because of this one group that decided they wanted to stay comfortable, but because this church, the, these people, sorry, this church, I just gave away the parable, but because these people became divided and lost sight of their purpose and their mission. See, the risk that Paul was warning Timothy about in Ephesus was this very same risk. That, that the church would lose sight of their purpose. Why they were there. Why they existed. They didn't exist to be a religious organization where, where they could affirm one another's beliefs and encourage one another along. They, had, they existed to become fishers of men. To be a life-saving station. The, the church was at risk of, of forgetting their purpose because there were false teachers that, that, were, that were kind of selfishly proclaiming a gospel that was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were selfishly proclaiming a gospel that, that, that uh, earned them more followers, that got more people to follow them where they could be selfishly encouraged because they, they could look back and see all the crowd that was following them. This is a real problem. It was a real problem for the church back in Ephesus, and it's a real problem for the church of today. And what was Paul's solution? Prayer. Prayer was Paul's solution for Timothy and all the spiritual leaders in the church. Someone once said that prayer unites the soul to God. And here's the thing. If my soul is united to God in prayer, if your soul is united to God in prayer, then we remain united to one another in the body of Christ. And we remain united to God's divine desire and his purpose as one body. See, prayer for all people not only aligns our hearts with God's, but it keeps us grounded in God's heart that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's easy to lose sight of why we're here, right? We get going with activities and and. And, and we, we try new things, and, and we have these plans. And it's easy to get caught up in, in the, 
the, the, the details of things and forget why we're doing what we're doing. But we're here because God has called us to share in his purpose and to share in his divine desire that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so finally, prayer reminds us who we are and, and who God is. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, we read this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You know, something of a marching anthem uh, we've been repeating the past few weeks is, it's not about you. It's not about me, and it's not about you. This life is not about you or I. It's about something much bigger and more grand than that. God wants you to be a part of his bigger story. God wants you to be a part of that grand story that's much bigger than you and I. But it begins with recognizing that it all finds its origins in him, right? Our lives don't revolve around ourselves. This life is not about what's my purpose, what's my plan, what's my gift, who am I, what's my identity. This life is not centered around me or ourselves. God is at the center of our world. And he's given us his son, Jesus Christ, as a mediator between us so that we can have a relationship with him, so that we can share in that place of prayer and our hearts can be aligned with his heart, so that we can develop the divine desire that God has for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. One God, one mediator between God and mankind, namely Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. See, so what, what we learn is that Adam didn't have the chops to be our go-between. Adam didn't have the ability to be our representative, the, the representative between God and us. He just didn't have it. Moses didn't have it either. Neither did Samuel or David or any of the other Old Testament heroes. The only representative of mankind that could sufficiently be our go-between was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man and fully God. And this is who our lives are meant to point to. This is who we should be exhibiting to the world, the life of Jesus Christ, the, the, the one mediator who sufficiently can be our go-between, between God and, and mankind. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about making Jesus visible to all. Earlier in our passage, Paul said that it was good and pleasing in God's sight that we should lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That we should pray that, that all kings and, and leaders, those in authority, would, would allow us to do this, right? 
But, but praying for kings and those in authority to let us live this way is not so that we could live a stress-free, middle-class, middle-class life that's nice and quiet. It's not just so that we can have our individual rights and, 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 and live freely in that space. That's not the purpose for which God is telling Paul to tell Timothy to tell us that we should be praying for these leaders for. He's calling us to pray for this kind of leadership over the land so that the people of God could live their life in Christ freely. So if it was just about me living a quiet, stress-free life, then it would absolutely be about me, right? It would absolutely be about us. But Paul's encouragement that we would pray for our kings and leaders and authorities so that so that we might find favor in their eyes, to live out the life that we've been called to live out in Christ Jesus. And not just to be able to live that life, but to live it in an exemplary way. To live it in a way where it's seen by the world around us. Do you get this? If we are praying as Paul invites us to pray, we're praying for the chance to live our lives so the world sees Jesus loud and clear. So that the, the world sees the church loud and clear. So that we could actually be a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Right? In, in 1 Timothy 2, 2, Paul says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a, quiet and peaceful, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The word that Paul uses for godly and dignified in every way actually conveys a, a visible behavior. Right? That, that, that's able to be witnessed by people around us. It's not some holier-than-thou attitude, but a visible life in which others can see the life-changing power of Jesus at work. Right? What the world needs to see is not how holy you are. What the world needs to see is how Jesus is transforming your life and making you more and more like him. That means the world needs to see some of the ugliness that's going on in your transformation. Because it's not nice and neat and clean. It doesn't look so holy when God does a work of changing this broken and prideful and arrogant heart that's in me and turns it into a humble, selfless, compassionate, merciful heart that follows after Jesus, right? This is a a visible Christ-like humility. It's a visible Christ-like grace and compassion, love, and forgiveness. See, church, the best argument for and against Christianity is how Christians practice their Christianity. If it's an argument against Christianity, it's most likely because of Christians behaving badly, or, or there's another alternative, or it's Christians living such a private life that their godliness is not seen by anyone else. That, that, that the life-changing power of God through Jesus Christ is not able to be witnessed by others in their, in their sphere of influence. See, God the Father sent God the Son to seek and to save the lost. Not just as a, as a signpost to point the way to safety, but to make the way possible as a ransom for all. Jesus didn't come just to show us the way, but to make the way possible, and to invite us into the way. And so God's only son commissioned his church to share in that mission, to carry on that mission, 
in such a way that others might see the character and the life of Christ lived out among God's children. Church, we're not a social club. We're not a, a, a group that gathers together to encourage one another and feel better about ourselves. We are a life-saving station. We're a life-saving station that's meant to passionately give ourselves to the shared mission of the church. We're to be a people who embody the character of Christ for others to see. We, we are called to embody the character of Christ for others to experience God's divine love and, and, and to be able to witness the power of God to transform lives. This doesn't happen by us living a quiet and private life where, where no one sees Jesus' work in our lives, but, but where we humbly allow others to see how the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is transforming us at the direction of the Father through the ministry of the Son. So church, the gospel of Jesus Christ is universally for all people. It's for all people. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of him. So what should we do? Pray. Pray, brothers and sisters. Pray for all people. Pray for all kings and all who are in positions of authority. Pray that we might lead a life formed in Christ-likeness that's visible to all people. Pray that our hearts might be aligned with God's and that we too might share in his divine desire that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So rekindle the gift that God has given you. Take your part in God's big story. Use the influence that God has given you in partnership with the rest of the church. Not by yourself. Don't go off on your own as, as some lone soldier. But use that gift in partnership with the rest of the church. That's going to be hard work. That's going to re require humility, listening, patience. But man, the reward is great. Because when, when God uses his church together, this world is transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just the news that you read on the newspaper, but the news that God is working in our world and in this day and in this moment, right now, in this community. So let's use that influence that God has given us and let's watch the love of Jesus overwhelm and transform the families of our community. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that, that you, in your wisdom, and in your plan, desire to use each and every one of us. You have given us an influence as spiritual leaders. Lord, there are some of us who need a greater confidence that you will use us, that we have a gift to use, that we have an influence over others. Lord, I pray that Satan would not have any sway over our hearts and minds today as we think about what influence you are calling us to use. I pray that whatever discouragement Satan wants to, to, to whisper into our ears would be squashed and that we would hear most boldly your invitation to stir up the gift that you have given us, to recognize that you have given us an influence. Lord, I pray that you would 
stir up our desire to meet with you in prayer every moment of every day, to pray the promises of God, to seek your wisdom in the word, and, and, and to pray it, to spend time with you, Father. That our hearts might align with yours, that we might develop the divine desire for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth along with you. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would have its way in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.